Let's pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I was a prisoner. Now I'm not. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Lord, that's our hope. Our hope is not in merely wishful thinking or a positive attitude. Our hope is not in the things around us, the things we have. Our hope is is not in the things that we can see. Our hope isn't even in ourselves or our goodness or our morality or our religiosity or anything that, that we bring to the table. Our hope is not in a passing feeling. Our hope is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you, hallelujah, for the cross and hallelujah for the empty tomb and thank you for the way that your grace changes everything. And so I pray that as we look at that now, as we look at your word, as we consider what, what you have done for us in Christ, my prayer is that that would change everything for us, that it would give us a hope that's not merely something in our minds or even something in our hearts, but a hope that changes everything about the way that we think and the way that we hope and the way that we live in everyday life. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Man, hey, thank you guys for being here today. It's awesome to, to worship with you guys. Uh, whether, you, whether you're a regular attender, whether you're watching online, whether you're visiting with us uh, today, thank you guys so much for being here. If we haven't met, my name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Um, and we are in a series right now called The Resurrected Life. And so what we're doing in this series is that we are walking through some key passages in the New Testament that talk about how the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago and half a world away changes everything about our lives lives in the here and now. And if you were with us here last week, you know that we started off at the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, where where Peter talks about this living hope, not a dead hope, not merely wishful thinking, but a living hope that we have because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now think about hope. Hope is, is, is really a buzzword in our world today. We are all looking for some kind of hope. We all want to believe that something better is coming, especially after the past year that we've had. But, but sometimes it's hard to keep hoping, isn't it? We experience so much brokenness in the world. We experience so much brokenness in our relationships. We feel so much brokenness in our own hearts and in our own lives. And it is so easy to lose hope. But that's nothing new. The book of 1 Peter is actually a letter that was written to Christians who were tempted to lose hope. They were suffering opposition and persecution for their faith. And Peter writes to them to remind them of their hope. In the midst of a world that's trying to kill their hope, he tells them how to keep hope alive. So let's look what he says. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. In other words, waking up your minds, being, being diligent to think about these things, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Peter says, I'm writing to you because I don't want you to lose hope. And if you want to keep hope alive, you need to remember two things. You need to remember what your future is, and you need to remember who your father is. Remember what your future is and remember who your father is. First, remember what your future is. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, not partially, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he starts out saying, therefore, and anytime you read the word therefore, you got to ask, what's it there for? And so what he's doing here is he's saying, in light of everything that's come up to this place, in light of what we looked at last week, that God has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, in light of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and you will rise with him, in light of the fact that his future is your future, hold on to your hope. Remember your future See, the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago tells us that a better future is coming. A future with no violence or racism or poverty or injustice. A future where sin and death and disease are eradicated. A future where we live fully in the presence of God under the blessing of God. A future where heaven literally comes down to earth. In the midst of a broken world, Peter says, remember that something better is coming. Remember what he said last week in verse 1. Peter said in, in verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, you are exiles. You are living in a land that's not your home. And, and if you're in exile, if you're living in a place where you're never fully accepted, where you're never really at home, then you will be tempted to lose hope. In fact, that's what exile was designed to do. It was designed to make you lose your identity, to forget who you are, and to make you forget what you're hoping in. The goal of exile is to immerse you in the midst of a culture that is telling you a different story and is trying to get you to place your hope in something else. As we said last week, Peter takes this idea of exile from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, 586 BC, the people of Israel were carried off to Babylon by the Babylonian Empire, and they lived in exile there. And the question before them was, can we as the people of God live as the people of God in a land that's hostile to our identity and our faith? And the danger for them was that they would forget the story that they would forget the story of God's redemption in the past and they would forget the future that God had promised them, that they would start believing the stories of the Babylonians and that they would eventually become just like them. The danger was that they would lose the story and losing the story would cause them to lose hope. And friends, that's the same danger for you and me because everywhere you go, you are hearing a story of hope. Everywhere you go, someone is trying to sell you a story about a better future. Apple releases a new product. We run out. We have to buy it because, because the newest iPhone tells us a story of unlimited possibilities. Tells us a story about a better future. That's what they're selling you. you. You turn on cable news. You open up your Facebook feed. Our politicians tell you that the country is going to hell in a handbasket, but if you vote for them, they'll save it. 
They'll give you a better future. They'll give you a better hope. You, you see that happy couple, and you think, if I could just be married, or, or maybe you think, if I could just be married to someone else, or if I could just be single. We hear a million different stories every day that call us to hope in something other than Christ. And if we don't prepare our minds for it, if we don't keep the good news of Jesus in the front of our minds, we will fall for those false hopes. That's why Peter says here, be sober-minded. Because simply living everyday life can dull our senses to the hope of the gospel. And this danger is so subtle because for most of us, it's not the really quote-unquote bad things that will lead us away from real hope. It's the good things that'll intoxicate us. Peter uses this illustration of alcohol here, right? He says, be sober-minded. And I think that's a really helpful illustration because if you read the Bible, the Bible treats wine as a gift from God. The prophets say this is a mark of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself turns water into wine as a sign that he is inaugurating his kingdom. So the Bible treats wine as a gift from God, but it also treats it as something that's extremely dangerous. And probably every one of us knows someone whose life has been wrecked by alcoholism. Now, do you see what's happened there? You've taken something good and you've become impaired by it. You've taken a good gift from God and you've twisted it and you've let it become the ultimate thing in your life so that rather than being intoxicated by God, now you're intoxicated by a drink. But Peter's point here isn't actually limited just to alcohol. The same thing is true for all the good things in life. We can take any of the good gifts that God has given us and we can become intoxicated by them. We can do this with our jobs. We can do it with our families. We can do it with money. We can do it with sex. We can do it with relationships. We can do it with hobbies. We can do it with entertainment. We can do it with politics. And what happens is we start to make these things the center of our hopes and our dreams. It's what we spend our free time daydreaming about. We become so intoxicated by these things that we stop being intoxicated with God. And so Peter says, be sober-minded. Remember where your hope lies. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the world. It's a gorgeous day. I'm hoping to enjoy the good gifts of God this afternoon. We enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, but we always recognize that those gifts are expressions of the goodness of God that are meant to point us to our ultimate hope in God. The, the gifts are not ultimate. The giver is ultimate. And jobs and families and money and relationships are all good gifts, but they make terrible gods. And, and if you put your hope in them, if you think this is, this is the thing that'll, that'll really give me joy, that'll really give me meaning, that'll really give me security, this is the thing that I am building my future on, they will always disappoint you. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember what your future is. So the Bible says that God has a vision for our future glory, that he has committed himself to making us into something breathtakingly beautiful. His plan for us is to make us look like Jesus, to make us a people who reflect his glory and his character and his beauty. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Christ, that is your future. And that future changes everything about the way that we live in the here and now. Listen, I love the way the Apostle John says it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
John says, that's your future. Being like Jesus, holiness, that's, that's your future. One day, God is going to completely and, erat- and, and radically set you free from the sin that is trying to destroy you. You'll see Jesus. You'll be like him. And because that's your future, it changes the way that you live in the present. Hope makes us holy. Hope that we have in the death and resurrection because of Jesus gives us new life. It gives us a new future. We're children of God. One day we're going to be like him. And that's the second thing that Peter tells us to remember here. He says, remember what your future is and remember who your father is. Remember who your father is. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now that is a breathtaking command. I don't think we really feel the weight of it because we don't really have a concept of what it means to be holy. Holiness is ultimately a characteristic of God. It sets God apart from everything that is not God. So Isaiah 6, I just was reading this in my personal time with the Lord a couple days ago. Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord in the temple and his glory is filling the earth and the seraphim are flying around and they have six wings and with two they fly, but with two they cover their eyes and two they cover their feet because they're in the presence of the blazing holiness of God. And they cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Even the angels of heaven are astounded by the uniqueness of God, the holiness of God, constantly praising him for his holiness. And then you read this, and and it says, you be holy as God is holy. We who are not God, called to be holy as God is holy. We who are sinners called to be holy as God is holy. How in the world can that ever happen? Well, it'll never happen if it depends on us. It'll never happen if it's us just trying to make ourselves holy by the sweat of our brow and by our own moral self-improvement. It's only possible if God makes us holy. That's why grace has to come first. Look again at verse 15. The order is important. As the one who called you is holy, past tense, you be holy in all your conduct. See, his call is what makes us holy. The word holy literally means set apart. And this is what we need to see. It is God who sets us apart. Holiness is first and foremost something God does. If you read the Old Testament, You find God sanctifying things is what it says, setting things apart as holy. So read the books, especially of Exodus, Leviticus. Um, God takes a utensil. God takes a piece of clothing. He sets it apart as holy. He sets it apart for himself. He does the same thing with people. He takes the priests. He sets them apart as holy. And the truth is, all you need to do is read the story to realize that there is nothing inherently superior about any of these things or any of these people. They they aren't holy because they are superior in any way. They are holy simply because God has set them apart by his grace, period. And the same is true for you and me. If you're in Christ, God has set you apart for himself. And it's not because you're morally superior or intellectually superior or inherently better than anyone else. It is simply because God has poured out his grace on you. God's grace comes first. God sets us apart by his grace. And then in light of that, he calls us to be holy. Again, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. He says, God made you holy, so live that way. Live like what you are. Holiness is not first and foremost what you do for God. It is first and foremost what God has done for you. God rescues you. God sets you apart. God gives his son to die in your place and rise again. God brings you into his family and makes you his child. And then we begin to live in light of that reality. We become children of God and we begin to look like our father. One of the truly terrifying things about being a parent is that my kids imitate me. Like they imitate, if you're a parent, you know this. Your kids, they watch you. They try to walk like you. They try to talk like you. They try to stand like you. They listen to the words you say. They repeat the words you say. All of them, no matter who's listening. Now, now I am a sinful, selfish, messed up father. And I am not always worthy of imitation. But I have a heavenly father who is righteous and merciful and patient and loving. And as his child, I want to become like that. I want to watch him and imitate him and grow to be like him. Holiness is the family resemblance of those who hope in Christ. Holiness is what God's kids look like. Holiness is what hope looks like in real life. Now, it's funny because like holiness, if we're honest, it's kind of a dirty word, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. But none of us want to talk about holiness. We think, when we think of holiness, we think of some sort of pious misery. Or maybe we think of, if you remember the old, back in the 80s, they had the Saturday Night Live skit called Church Chat. And there was the church lady who was always looking for ways to condemn people, always looking for ways to prove how she was morally superior and she would, and she would look down her nose at other people. That's what a lot of us think about when we think about holiness. That's not how the Bible talks about holiness. In the Bible, there are really two sides of holiness. There's, there's kind of the negative side, for lack of a better term, and it basically says what not to do. So it's verse 14. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't keep falling for the same lies. And that's part of it. But there's also a positive side. Holiness isn't just about not doing certain things. It's about learning to love God and to love our neighbors It's interesting, this phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, is a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 too. And if you read Leviticus 19, you find that holiness is not just about some kind of moral separateness or some kind of moral cleanness. It's about loving your neighbor. I'm sure you guys all woke up and read Leviticus this morning. Uh, But in case you didn't, Leviticus 19, here's an overview. So Leviticus 19.2, God says, be holy as I am holy. I want you to reflect my character in the way you treat one another. But then he fleshes that out. What does it mean? Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, it means being generous to the poor. Leviticus 19, 11, and 12, it means operating in integrity with your, in your business. Leviticus 19, 13 through 16, it means standing up for justice for the oppressed. Leviticus 19, 18, he sums it up by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it looks like to be holy as God is holy. Holiness makes us different so that we can make a difference. Holiness means that we are set apart from the world for the sake of the world. Holiness makes us a counterculture for the common good. Holiness sets us free from just living for our own desires so that we can live for the good of Chautauqua County and so that we can live for the good of the nations. We hear all this talk about holiness, about 
denying our desires. And, and it's one of those things we, we, we naturally want to back away from. We tend to think that God's commands are somehow restrictive, that they're somehow a drag. But what I want us to see is that holiness is the path to freedom. It's the path to wholeness. It's the path to flourishing. The truth is anything that is good for us is restrictive. If we want to experience wholeness in any area of our lives, we have to learn to say yes to some things and no to some things. Right? So think about it. If you want to be healthy, you restrict the kind of foods you eat. You restrict your sleep schedule. You'll discipline your body through exercise. You don't eat whatever you want whenever you feel like it. I'm preaching to myself here. I need to remind myself of that daily. If you want to be a great musician, what? You restrict your schedule. You make sacrifices so that you can practice. If you want to excel in your job, you place restrictions on your time. You learn to focus on your task. See, we all like the idea of unlimited choices in theory, but in practice, we can't live that way. In the real world, you can't choose everything. So listen, true freedom is not having unlimited choices. True freedom is being able to choose the best option. And God says, I want you to choose the best option. Don't keep falling for those lies. You're no longer a slave to these things. You have a better hope, and hope produces holiness in you. And, and hope doesn't just produce holiness. Holiness guards our hope. Holiness helps keep us trusting in the gospel. Holiness helps keep hope alive. That's why Peter warns us here. Look at verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, the point here isn't that you should be afraid of God in a way that makes you run away from God. The point, though, is that you should be afraid of the danger that sin poses to your soul, and that should make us run to him. His point is that we need to learn to take God seriously, and we need to learn to take sin seriously. That we recognize that there is a day coming. There is a judgment coming. And so we hold onto the hope of the gospel and we don't want to be lured away by the lies of sin. I've seen this played out time and time again. Maybe you have as well. Someone you know and you love says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Maybe they, maybe they join a church. Maybe they even become a pastor. But over time, they begin believing these subtle lies of sin. They start giving in to these soul-destroying, hope-destroying desires. And the next thing you know, they completely walk away from Jesus. Now listen, there, there are a lot of reasons that that can happen. We are complex people. Our lives are messy. But, but I don't want to be overly simplistic here. But here's the thing. At the core of it, at the core of it, because I have felt this pull in my own life, what happens is that we begin to believe the false hopes of sin. And I don't mean just like bad things. I just mean living life on our own terms, living life by our own rules. And what happens is that that steals our hope in the gospel. So the thing is, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe in this room, maybe watching online, maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're walking down that road today and God is calling you back. He is patient, he is merciful, he is loving, he is forgiving. You will never be able to out-sin his forgiveness. He wants you to come back to him. He wants you just to be honest about it. He wants you to receive his forgiveness. He wants you to be cleansed in this blood of Christ. And he wants you to come home to your father who loves you. And the very fact that you are hearing this right now shows that he has not given up on you. 
He's calling you to come back to him. He promises he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can come back to him. It's a reminder here, though, that we don't pursue holiness just because it's the right thing to do, because somehow we're trying to be moral, religious people. We pursue holiness because holiness keeps hope alive. Hope produces holiness. Holiness guards hope. Holiness is how our Heavenly Father protects us. As most of you guys know, Tracy and I have three young kids. I cannot tell you how many times a day we have to remind them it's important to obey mommy and daddy. Like, it's like on repeat in our house. It's important to obey mommy and daddy. But why? Why is it important for them to obey us? Is it because we're bigger than them? Is it because we're stronger than them and we can impose our will on them? Is it because we want to get our way? Now, among other things, it's because we know that certain things will hurt them. And we have a vision for their future, for their future flourishing, and we want to protect them. Like, son, I know right now you think sticking that metal screw up your nose is the best thing for you. I can promise you it's not. I know right now you think silverware is oppressive and you shouldn't have to use it. I promise you in a few years you're going to be thankful that we taught you this. Like, do you see what I'm saying? God is a better father than I will ever be. And he knows more about the way the world works than I ever will. And he is committed to making me fully happy in him. He has a vision for my future glory. So when he sees me sticking that metal screw up my nose and he tells me it's not a good idea, I can trust him. I can trust him when he calls me to holiness. I can trust him when he calls me to obedience. I can trust that he is doing it for my good. I can trust that he's doing it because he loves me. This is really important here. Because I know that for some of us right now, all of this talk about holiness can actually make us feel hopeless. Because we just start to be honest with ourselves and we look at our lives and we see how far we have to go. And we feel this daily struggle with sin. And we could start believing there's no hope for me because, because real Christians don't struggle that way. That's not how holiness works. See, sanctification, growing in holiness, doesn't mean that you will never fail. It means that you continue to trust in a Savior who never fails. It means that when we fall, we fall on the grace of God, and his grace cleans us and picks us up and empowers us to fight another day. Even our struggles show us our need for a Savior. They drive us to Jesus. They lead us to trust him more and love him more and find our hope in him. I was uh, scanning Twitter the other day, which is where I do my best sermon research, and uh, this tweet from Jen Wilkin popped up in my timeline. So Jen Wilkin is a a Bible teacher in Dallas, and she says this about sanctification, about, about growing in holiness. She says, sanctification rarely looks like an immediate ceasing of a particular sin, It more often looks like an uh, an increase in the distance between repeated sins and a decrease, this is important, a decrease in the distance between committing them and confessing them. God is so patient with his children. So that's how we grow in holiness. We, We stumble, we struggle, we fall. But sanctification means that we learn to turn back and learn to turn back more quickly to our Father. And we run to him, we run to him, we confess our sins, we receive his forgiveness, and over time, that makes us more like Jesus. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not some magical moment where you immediately stop struggling. It's not about getting to the point where you've nailed it. As a matter of fact, the more you grow in holiness, the more you will probably feel less and less like you nailed it. 
where you feel like you're struggling more and more. Sanctification is not some triumphant upward climb. It's the path of downward mobility. It is a humbling process, a process of continual repentance and struggle and confession and forgiveness. And over time, that builds our hope in Christ. We're honest with God. He exposes the sin of our, in our hearts, but that reminds us how much we need Jesus. That leads us to trust Jesus more, and it leads us to treasure Jesus more, and it leads us to place our hope not in ourselves or our moral performance, but in Christ, because our hope is not in our obedience. Our hope is in the obedience of Christ. Our hope is not in what we do. Our hope is in what Christ has done for us. See, verse 17 drives us to verse 18. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, God gave the most precious thing in the universe. Gave the blood of his son to ransom me from my slavery to sin and death and condemnation. Jesus was killed so that I could be made alive. Jesus was condemned so that I could be made righteous. Jesus gave his own blood for my future glory. And if God loves us like that, if he loves us so much that he gave his own son to die in order to give us life, then we can trust him. We can trust him with our money. We can trust him with our families. We can trust him with our relationships. We can trust him with our careers. We can trust him with everything. And even when we fail to trust him, because there are many of these times, even when we fail to trust him, we can trust him with our sin. We can come honestly to him and confess our sins and we can know that he will forgive us and he will cleanse us. He bought us with his blood. He is never giving up on his children. So no matter where you are today, remember what your future is and remember who your father is. All right, let's pray. Father, it is only by your grace that we can even address you, even, even say that word, Father, and know that you accept us as your children. It's all your mercy. It's all your grace. It's all what you've done for us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So God, I, I pray that you would help us remember that because so often we forget that. So often we forget what our future is. We get bogged down in the day-to-day and and sometimes what feels like hopelessness, maybe the hopelessness in the world, maybe the hopelessness just in our own hearts or our own lives. And then sometimes, Lord, we we look other places for hope. We try to find our hope in all of these other things. We become intoxicated with these other things instead of being intoxicated with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would remind us what our future is and that that future would make its way back into the present and change the way that we live in the here and now. And I pray that you would remind us who our Father is, that you would remind us that we are your sons and daughters in whom you are well-pleased because of Jesus, because of what he did for us in his death and resurrection. 
Hallelujah for the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you have ransomed us with your blood through your death and resurrection that changes everything. We worship you now in Christ's name. Our key verse, our key verse this week um, comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. It's verse 13. And so we have a key verse every week. Take this, think about it, meditate on it, and use it to orient your life this week. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to send you out with a benediction, a, a word of blessing for the road that I just want to pray over you guys from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Have a great week, guys.